was praying that the raging storm would stay a little longer with your feet up on the dashboard of my summer dream and westward i was hoping that we'd wake up to the softest of spring mornings humming do 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 Hollow chronicles and lessons from a life tied to family, community, and the land. I'm Shannon Hayes, and I operate Sapbush Hollow Farm with three generations of my family in the northern Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. I'm the chef owner of Sapbush Cafe, a farm to table and neighbor to neighbor experience in our tiny hamlet of West Fulton, and I'm also the author of a few books, including Radical Homemakers and the Grass Fed Gourmet. This podcast is the audio version of my blog, which can be found at sapbush.com or theradicalhomemaker.net. Does anyone find it interesting that in the debate about whether to open or close schools and how that impacts parents trying to work and manage kids, that no one asked the folks who do it every day for insights? Well, for what it's worth, I'm going to offer them up today with seven tips for thriving while your kids school at home. Nobody asked you. The words rattle in my brain during a slow moment at the cafe as I hide on a corner stool in the back of the kitchen and scroll through the New York Times on my phone. The debate about whether or not to open schools captures my interest I read an op-ed from a woman who argues that in pandemic culture, a person can have kids or a job, but not both. I read debates about the dangers of not opening, that children will be left behind, that they won't be able to keep up, a concept that really mystifies me. I read about the dangers to children in abusive and neglectful homes. What I don't see in the debates are the voices of family farmers, homeschoolers, and radical homemakers, all who are steeped in a culture of blending work, family, and school every day. This doesn't concern us, I suppose. We're unaffected by this wrangle about whether or not to open schools, so our views aren't solicited. The irony is that it doesn't concern us because it has always concerned us. The concept of school or daycare is conspicuously absent from many of our lives, sometimes by choice, sometimes by economic default, sometimes for cultural preservation. But either way, there is a vast subculture all over the world in rural and urban settings that has managed economic survival with children at home at all ages for many generations. I'm surprised at how the public debate has focused on reinventing the wheel rather than inviting our engagement with addressing the problems. (laughs) We're too fringe, I think. 
Our experiences are discounted because... Because why, exactly? Because many of us made these choices voluntarily? Because we're dismissed as religious fanatics or subjugated or too naive about the real world to know better? Or because we're somehow super competent intellectual outliers or addicted to martyrdom? Or maybe we're just wacky. It's hard to say, but the truth is that many of us have found the greatest part of our journey keeping parents and children together throughout the day is our own personal development. We grow and learn from this experience all the time, and that growth longs for expression. And so I know nobody asked me how to cope with having kids at home all day, but I want to use today to talk about it because I've done it. And I've done it while writing seven books, maintaining a blog, going through the throes of entrepreneurial startups and running an existing family business. I've done it while caring for parents. I've done it while negotiating learning disabilities. I've even taken a third youth into my home to help him resume his education over the next few years. And I'm not a talented educator. In fact, I've done it, believe it or not, with the support of the teachers at my local school. Even though I'm a homeschooler, their involvement has been key to our success. Thus, in my mind, when I look at the collaborative prospects of families and schools working together to educate our youth, I'm genuinely excited for them. This can work. And society will probably find a way to improve education as a result of this upheaval. But the only way to get to that better place is to move through this tough place. So with my compulsion to express wisdom from my own experience, I've offered here a few tips about balancing work with educating children at home. They won't all apply to all situations, but hopefully some will prove helpful if you're a worried parent. 1. Work your prime hours only. Most of us have hours when we're at our best. Our focus is razor sharp. Our energy is highest. For me, that's a three-hour window before everyone wakes up. When my kids were really little, I learned that I could accomplish a full day's work by focusing on those prime hours alone and then had my days free to parent and run a household. When I worked for employers, once I proved I could do the same job in fewer hours, I was able to negotiate eight hours pay for three to four hours worth of work. Two, actual school doesn't take that much time. I had a homeschooling mom explain this to me. She came to her path while working as an aide in her oldest daughter's classroom. She began observing how much time went to changing tasks, taking attendance, and managing disruptions, then started clocking the actual hours spent learning. The school day ran from 8 a.m. until 3 p.m. The actual teaching was under three hours. From kindergarten through high school, I've been able to fulfill my teaching obligations to my kids in two focused hours per day. Three, find the sweet spot and stay within it. While going through the worst of Ula's visual impairment and learning issues, I took some time to study neuroplasticity in the brain. You can see an essay I wrote in 2015 called Brain Science for Eight-Year-Olds, if you're interested. And I learned there was a sweet spot. 
This was where the time of day was right and she was challenged with new information, but not overwhelmed. If her experience during this window was positive, she felt good, she was interested, the mood in the room was positive, and the web of dendrites and axon terminals in her brain would grow more complex and functional. If the mood was rife with anger, fear, or frustration, that same web would wither. Thus, I learned to start schooling reliably at the same time each day and to deliver material quickly, then let her go play. Homework was only as good as it held her interest and gave her a chance to practice her lessons. Beyond that, it was detrimental by virtue of the stress it caused. 4. Keeping up is scarcity thinking at its worst. When parents worry about their kids keeping up, They're buying into a toxic belief that their children are in a race for which there are only a few winners, for the slots at the best schools, the best colleges, the best jobs. We try to practice abundance thinking in our family. Opportunity is something that we create. It is limited only by our imaginations. That makes the keeping up mentality seem pretty silly. I've learned that when I teach my kids math curriculum two years behind the Common Core recommendations, they are emotionally ready for the content and jazzed up to play with it. I don't even know what reading level Ula is. Corey's life threw him for a loop, and he's missed a lot of schooling years. Sersha found academics easy, but has zero interest in attending college. They're all intelligent kids who would charm you to no end with their engagement with world issues and their curiosity and fire for life. They all have bright futures. They're all now working on the farm with vast competencies. None of them kept up. Learning isn't a race that we finish on a schedule. It's a lifelong pursuit. Number five. Learning happens outside of academics. Instead of keeping up during the pandemic period, I would urge parents to instead keep connecting at the dinner table. Lots of learning happens there, whether it's vocabulary, current events, or just emotional intelligence. And then there's the education that happens outside when we learn to connect with and treasure our natural resources or local parks and identify them as part of our true wealth. Study less, connect more. The dividends are surprising. Six, family, family, family. Community, community, community. I know we're supposed to be social distancing, but be strategic and find your support network. We aren't going to get through this crisis as independent islands. Expect partnership from your partner. Ask for help in the absence of a partner. You will likely be enriching someone's life by asking them to participate and help you. If you've got the bandwidth, be a neighbor or a family member or pod member to someone who needs it. It isn't enough for society to lament inequities and injustices, then leave it to government and institutions to resolve it. Systemic racism and inequalities demand that we absorb them on a personal level. It may seem awkward, it may seem inconvenient, but getting involved and sharing the experience with others will be memorable. And speaking of memories, number seven, you will remember this time fondly. Yes, 
fondly. Think back on some of the hardest times in your life, PTSD-inducing drama excluded. How many of those hard times resulted in fond memories? That's because working through problems is what makes life interesting. Tackling this challenge is going to stay with you and your kids for the rest of your lives. It will stand out from the mundane day-to-day shuffle to soccer practice and science class and whatever other enrichment activities they were enrolled in to keep up and help them run the mythical race. Because the race is over. Life now is about savoring the connections we have. It's about rebuilding something new from the rubble of the chaos. It's about rising from the ashes. This is an extraordinary time to be alive and for your kids to be present in the moment with you. No, this doesn't solve all the problems with blending public education with social distancing. Then again, public education was no panacea before either. But maybe it will give a few more of you a dose of encouragement for making the most of it. And yeah, it's inconvenient. Yes, it's hard. That's what will make the experience so darn savory. Make the most of it. Now I'll shut up, because nobody asked me. with the support of my patrons on Patreon. And this week, I'd like to send a shout out to my patrons, Jody Allison Bunnell and Eileen Alduenda. Thank you, folks. I couldn't do it without you. Some of you may have noticed that the oldest episodes of The Hearth of Sapwish Hollow are slowly disappearing from public access. They're not gone. They're just moving over to my Patreon page. If you'd like to help support my work for as little as a dollar a month, you can have access to all the archives anytime you want. Yay! Just hop over to Patreon and look up Shannon Hayes. You can listen to all those back episodes next week because I'll be gone for a spell. Bob and I are taking the kids on a backcountry canoe trip. Please, can someone ask for good weather for us? Because right now it looks like a lot of rain. So anyhow, there won't be an episode next week, but there is a lot of content to keep you entertained in the interim. For those of you who've been following straight along, you've learned that Sapbush Hollow Farm, like so many small livestock farms across the nation, has lost access to our federally inspected slaughterhouses due to an influx of animals from the COVID-infected plants out west. If you're one of our customers, please consider purchasing a meat share using our new CSA-style system so that we can continue to process your meat for you. The cuts will be the same, and the food will be just as safe and healthful. It's just that the terms of our relationship have to change, where instead of being a customer, you become more of a shareholder. For steeper discounts, you can buy your shares up front, and you can learn more about CSA shares at sapbushfarmstore.com. This discussion has sparked a flood of replies from farmers out there. Sapbush Hollow is far from alone in this. In the midst of a food shortage, small farmers are being barred from the legal means to bring their products to market. We need your help. Judith McGeary from Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance tells me that the Prime Act, S-1620, S-1620, is going before the Senate. 
any day now, we think. It would allow the in-state sale of small farmers' meat processed at state-inspected custom slaughterhouses. Basically, it would enable local food for local processing. Makes sense, right? It doesn't make sense for everyone. I had a call from a congressional aide this week that was an effort to talk sense into me about the Prime Act. There's no way our meat will be safe without USDA inspection, he informed me. And yet, every major meat-related foodborne illness has taken place in a USDA-inspected facility. What our legislators need help understanding is that safety is a function of animal units overwhelming the system. If you're pushing 20,000 hogs through a USDA meat packing house in a day, then yeah, you need some serious inspection. And even that, as history has shown us, will not correct the problem. The odds of contamination are just too high. But these custom slaughterhouses are operating for us small farmers. They process animals for one farmer at a time, and they're moving through maybe six hogs in a day. That means it is not a stressed system. Problems can be stopped before they even start. I received another question this week from a reader who wants to know how we can ensure humane treatment of animals without a USDA inspection process. It's a great question, but I have to ask one question back. Would you consider a meat packing plant that processes 20,000 hogs in a day humane just because it has USDA inspection? That process alone is not only sick and cruel to the animals, it is dehumanizing for anyone who has to work within it, including inspectors. We want the Prime Act to empower us to use our small-scale custom slaughterhouses. In the small-scale custom slaughterhouses, we can do a far better job ensuring humane treatment. For one thing, each farmer takes their animals back to sell them to their customers as meat. The livestock aren't just blindly fed into an industrial food supply. This is a small farm-centric bill. Small farmers get into this business because we like animals. We like them best living when we can scratch their ears, watch them contentedly chew their cuds, and even kiss their noses. Yes, we do that. Enabling the small custom slaughterhouses to work with us helps us do what we feel is part of our calling shepherd these animals through the death process as kindly as possible. And if we don't, then our product suffers. Stress hormones in the animals can ruin the meat. When you direct market your meat, there's an economic incentive to treat the animals kindly. So please, if you like to eat and you haven't already done so, take a minute to call or write your senator and urge them to sign on to S1620, the Prime Act, to empower the small farmers in this country to save us from the next round of food shortages. Once you've done that, please reach out to your congressional representative in the House and ask them to support H.R. 2859. H.R. 2859. New York folks, listen up. We really need your help right now. You need to get a hold of Senator Schumer. Judith says that your voice is particularly important in this effort because of Senator Schumer's position as Senate Minority Leader. It is vital that he hear from as many New York residents as possible. 
And for those of you who've written to tell me you reached out, thank you. Here are some more bells and whistles of gratitude. Now, in the event the Prime Act fails, I have a special favor to ask those of you who buy from local farmers. Keep supporting them. We have to change the structure of our businesses and marketing dramatically, and many of us will have to ask you to change with us. We need you to be forgiving, compassionate, and adaptable as we work through these hard times. If you can stick by us through this, it will be a great big win for local food. And now for some good news. Our COVID-19 infection rates continue to hold stable here in New York State, and Schoharie County has one of the lowest infection rates in the entire state. So the cafe remains open. But now, for our peace of mind, for outdoor dining and takeout only. You can find us Saturdays from 9 to 1 for breakfast and lunch and 5 to 8 for dinner. That said, dinner is just a mom and pop show with Bob and me, so we are accepting no more than 8 guests during the entire shift. This is the magic number where we can balance solvency, safety, service, and our personal sanity. So please email me, shannon at sapbush.com, if you want to make a reservation. And for goodness sakes, wear your masks. And you know fall must be right around the corner because our blankets have come back from the mill. Each year we send our fleeces to Prince Edward Island where they are woven into the softest wool blankets you've ever felt. They're beautiful, machine washable, and they'll last for generations. We also have some of our wool processed out in Michigan into organic comforters and pillows. Wool bedding is naturally fire retardant and it enables your skin to breathe easier and helps your body to thermoregulate better than down or synthetics. We can ship our wool bedding anywhere, so scroll on over to sapbushfarmstore.com and check them out. And to my fellow farmers again, Thanks for listening, and thanks for the work you're doing. We've navigated through a lot of instability as a nation. Now, more than ever, we need each other to be there and to hold strong. We're weaving a new food system. We're trying to sow peace and sustenance amidst pain, loss, hatred, and confusion. We can get through this. We can come through this period with a healthier planet, a healthier food system, and with greater justice and kindness but we need as many people at the table as possible to make it work. So please remember that you cannot execute your calling if you aren't well. Take care of yourselves. The work we can do to build health and restore community is endless, but we can only do what the day allows. Please be kind to each other, then get some rest so you can keep going strong tomorrow. The work will always be there. This was produced and edited by the sexiest man alive, my husband Bob Hooper, and the great music we're listening to comes to us from memory. Thanks for listening and have a great week.